This episode of Outlines contains content which some listeners may find distressing, so as always, discretion is advised. In the northwest corner of East Anglia, in the place where the county of Norfolk meets Lincolnshire, sits one of Britain's broadest estuaries. This is the Wash, a large horse-shaped bay which runs inland to mudflats, fens and sandy beaches, and outwards to the grey of the North Sea. Today's episode starts on Snettisham Beach, on the west coast of Norfolk, or the eastern side of the Wash, which lies 14 miles from the port town of Kings Lynn. In December of 2021, I stand on the beach in Snettisham with my camera in hand and snap two Polaroids. One to the left, which faces towards a small car park and a line of static caravans, and one to the right, where people in winter coats hide their faces from the cold wind which is whipping in from the water, and trudge along the sand to the place where the coast curves gently out of sight. Nowadays, the swelling of autumn and winter tides bring wading birds to the Snettisham RSPB reserve, and prompt the digital sign outside nearby Digley Caravan Park to illuminate in warning. Here, if you linger too long, the whole beach can silently disappear around you. As I stand on the sand, I think of how I stand in the footsteps of Leonard Exall, whose daughter Pamela disappeared here late in the evening of Friday the 30th of August 1974, or in the early hours of the 31st, after leaving her tent at Digley Caravan Park in order to take a solo beach walk under an almost full moon. An article from Saturday the 14th of September 1974 begins with the line A father took the loneliest walk in the world yesterday along a Norfolk beach where his 22-year-old daughter went missing last month but there was nothing to be found. The same newspaper article has a list of bullet points all of which are police suggestions as to what might have happened to Pamela. These read Number 1 she might have walked out on the sand and been cut off by the incoming tide. Number two, she might have fallen into a dike behind shingled banks. Number three, she could have gone off on her own for no apparent reason. And number four, she may have been abducted. If you take a look on the Norfolk Police website under Unsolved Cases, you'll find a page on Pamela's disappearance. The blurb reads... Several possibilities have been considered, and one line of inquiry is that she may have become cut off by the tide and drowned. However, officers have kept an open mind and still hope to solve this missing persons inquiry. Ever since I started researching Norfolk cases a couple of years ago, I've wanted to cover the disappearance of Pamela Exall. The image of the 22-year-old girl on a beach at midnight has always stayed in my head, but I didn't know if I would be able to find enough information to form a full episode. Because even the police sound like they think she got cut off by the tide. And there was so little out there to go on. But this December, something made me go back through the archives and dig a little deeper. And slowly a story emerged. One about a psychic reverend whose visions of Pamela in the Netherlands and further afield would bring long-lasting hope to her parents, Leonard and Winifred who never quite gave up on the idea that one day their daughter may return home. I'm Jess Carter, and this is The Outlines Podcast. 
the summer of 1974, Pamela Jean Exall, her 17-year-old brother Peter and their friend David set off together on a motorbiking tour of Britain. Pamela, who was 22 years old, had just graduated with a second-class honours in law from Kingston Polytechnic and was soon due to begin a new job as an articled clerk at Berkshire County Council. She and Peter were the adopted children of Leonard and Winifred Exall, with whom they lived at Rushmore Close in the town of Fleet in Hampshire in the south of England. Leonard was a phone engineer, Winifred a teacher, and by all accounts the Exall children's upbringing was a happy one, with the newspaper later reporting that Pamela was stable and happy with no serious problems. It was early August when Pamela, Peter and David began their motorbike tour. Over the month, they travelled slowly up the country, visiting Blackpool, the Lake District in Scotland, before starting their return journey back home to Hampshire. They decided that before making the final part of their trip, they would visit the Wash in Norfolk. And so, on Friday the 30th of August, sometime between 4 and 5pm, the trio found themselves pitching their tents on the Torres Only field at Digley Campsite. The day that my partner and I visit Snettersham Beach, I try to imagine how the area would have looked in the 70s. I write a few things down in my little green notebook. They say, the road is lined with silver birches and pine trees. Pines in particular are a staple of the Norfolk scenery. As we turn off of the main road and head towards Digley, my notes say, the road narrows and becomes almost a single track with no markings. There is a lot of open space and copses or woods. I didn't notice it so strongly on the way to the camp, but as we head back, I get a real sense for how remote the area really is. The thing with Norfolk is that it's mostly arable land. The principal crops are wheat, barley, oilseed rape and sugar beet. One of my enduring memories of family holidays in the county is driving through Bury St Edmunds on our way up the country and seeing the chimneys of British sugar factories as they spill their white smoke into the sky. The route we drive to Snettersham is very similar to the one I took as a child. And what is interesting is to see how the towns and yellowed or muddy countryside of Essex and Suffolk give way to the ploughed fields, pig farms and pine forests of Norfolk. The area around Snettersham has a long history. On our way there, we pass Castle Rising, described on the English Heritage webpage as being one of the largest, best preserved and most lavishly decorated keeps in England surrounded by 20 acres of mighty earthworks. Just five miles from Digley Holiday Park stands Sandringham House, one of the Queen's royal residences. The Norwich Castle Museum and the British Museum in London hold collections of Iron Age precious metal found in the area of Snettersham between 1948 and 73, which are referred to as the Snettersham Hoard. This is an area steeped in history, and largely untouched by the urban sprawl which has begun to creep through most of its neighbouring counties. As we drive the winding road from the Digley and Snettersham holiday parks, I take note of just how little signs of human activity the countryside holds. There are mudflats, salt marshes and man-made salt water pits of the RSPB reserve, 
and further inland, copses of trees, plenty of open fields, and empty space. This is the kind of area where if someone intended for you to go missing, it would be easy to achieve. On that Friday in 1974, after Pamela, Peter and David finished setting up their tents, Pamela rang her mum to tell her that she and Peter would be returning home that Sunday evening. She said that they'd had a lovely holiday and requested that they have roast chicken for dinner the night they returned. After she had finished her phone call, the trio spent the evening in the camp clubhouse where they stayed until closing time. As they left the clubhouse, the boys headed to the toilet and Pamela went back to her tent. When Peter and David returned to their camp, they found that Pamela had changed her clothes and she asked them to accompany her for a walk on the beach. They both decided they were too tired, but Pamela still wanted to go and so she said, see you later folks. And with that, she turned into the moonlight and would never be seen again. I've had a look at an ordnance survey map from around the time and it seems as if the easiest way to get to Snettersham Beach from Digley Holiday Park would have been for Pamela to leave the site and follow the perimeter of the camp until she reached the end of the road and the short track to the beach. The moon was one day away from being full, and it was reported at the time that the evening was clear and moonlit. Pamela stood five foot tall with brown eyes and very long brown wavy hair. There's a photograph taken just before the trio arrived in Norfolk which was released by police shortly after her disappearance. In it, she looks a little like Janis Joplin, and very much like a woman who belongs to that era. On the night she went missing, she was dressed in blue jeans, a leather jacket and brown suede shoes. She'd taken nothing with her, and the next morning, when her brother and his friend awoke to find Pamela missing, they searched her small blue tent and discovered her still rolled up sleeping bag, her kit bag, her handbag which contained some money, her checkbook, a diary and the keys to her motorbike which was still parked outside. The boys checked the hospital at nearby Kings Lynn in case something had happened to Pamela on her walk, but there was no sign of her there or along the beach, and so they reported her missing. In the days which followed Pamela's disappearance, there was a distinct lack of press coverage. I told you earlier how difficult it had been to find enough information on what happened to Pamela. Most of what can be found wasn't reported until months and sometimes years after she went missing, and so some of the information is unreliable, even when it's from sources that really should be accurate. For instance, sometimes Pamela is 21, other times 22. The Norfolk Police website lists her age as 22, and that's what I've gone with. But then, the Norfolk Police website also lists her as having disappeared on the evening of the 27th of August 1974, and every other source I can find lists the date as Friday the 30th, or the early hours of Saturday the 31st. Given that Friday was the 30th and that she called her mother to let her know that they would be back on the Sunday, I'm inclined to believe that on this occasion the police have just got the wrong date. The problem with Pamela's case is that she went missing at exactly the wrong time and in exactly the wrong place, because just three days previously, 
on the 27th of August, only 30 miles away from Snettersham and just outside the small village of Cockley Clay, the bundled up headless body of a woman had been discovered by a small farm track. I'm not going to go into what happened at Cockley Clay here, though it is the focus of the next Patreon-only episode, which comes out next week. It is important because the fact that the investigation into the unidentified body already had the media and police's full attention meant that when Pamela went missing, her story was overshadowed somewhat by the events at Cockley Clay. Despite this, in the immediate aftermath, a mobile headquarters was set up at Beach Road in Snettersham, and tracker dogs and helicopters were brought in to help the 40 police officers who were hunting for Pamela. The dog handlers began their search from where her tent was pitched, and from there they extended outwards in a pattern described in one paper as being like segments of an orange. Frogmen, led by Inspector John Cass, who was the head of Norfolk's underwater search and recovery team, scoured the rubbish-littered bottoms of the nearby gravel pits, and officers went around interviewing the occupants of every caravan on the Digley site. There were 142 vans, a quarter of which were being used on the Friday night, and so police spoke to around 36 caravans worth of holidaymakers. It sounds like they did a pretty thorough job, despite what was unfolding in Cockley Clay. But the man leading the hunt, Detective Superintendent Reg Lester, told the Lynn Advertiser on the 6th of September, As each day goes by, it gets more serious. We have the number of men we require, but only because some have been called in on rest days. It's difficult to know whether or not the tired eyes of police working overtime could have impacted the investigation, though I do find it interesting to note that the date given on the Norfolk Police's website for Pamela's disappearance is the date that the body was found in Cockley Clay, and not the one in which Pamela went missing. Even now, it seems as if one case is somehow tangled with the other. On the 17th of October 1974, just over a month and a half after she went missing, an article appeared in a Rotterdam newspaper. Under the headline, Engelse Student Vermist, or English Student Missing, there is a black and white photograph of Pamela, the same one that was taken just before she arrived in Norfolk. She stands slightly awkwardly, her arms are stick straight by her side, but she has a wide grin on her face. Next to the photograph are a few paragraphs of text. They say that Pamela came to the Netherlands to visit Amsterdam or Haarlem on holiday in August, that she speaks no Dutch and that, since her arrival, nobody has heard anything from her. At the height of the investigation, while in Norfolk police were hypothesising, in the words of Detective Inspector Ken Watling, that she could have walked two miles without getting her feet wet, the tide was at its lowest ebb, she could then have got cut off by the incoming tide. For Pamela's parents, a new theory was emerging. It started with a man named Reverend Peter Goldthorpe, who read about Pamela's case in a Sunday newspaper, and while looking at her photograph, he claimed that a premonition came to him. He said that he knew she was still alive, and that the words Harlem and Houtstrat were important, as was the number 112 and that somehow these things related to a cafe. 
The premonition was apparently so convincing that the Reverend felt compelled to track down Pamela's parents. Speaking about this moment in an article from 1983, Reverend Goldthorpe said, It's the only time something like this has happened. It's a unique experience for me. I was reading about it in the Sunday paper when the feeling came to me that I knew where she was. I felt I had to contact them. I didn't think I was dreaming it up. I think it was God-given and I handed it on. God knew that there was a couple in distress and for reasons best known to him just chose to give me the details. I had never been to Holland and I didn't know any Dutch names. The Reverend's contact came at the right time for Leonard and Winifred Exall, who were desperate for any leads, and so the couple decided to go to the Netherlands to distribute 500 posters with Pamela's photograph and description. While on the streets of Harlem, a woman approached the Exalls, telling them that her husband had a story. Her husband, who worked in a nearby cafe, swore that three weeks earlier, around the time of the Reverend's premonition, a girl matching Pamela's description had been sitting, drinking in the cafe. Leonard and Winifred visited him at work and showed him some photos of Pamela. Winifred remembered that he pointed to the most recent picture and said, that's her. The cafe, reportedly, was situated opposite number 112 on Houtstraat in Harlem. It's difficult to know just how much of this has been sensationalised for dramatic effect. When I looked up the words Harlem and Houtstraat, I see that there are actually three. There is a Korte Houtstraat, or Short Wood Street, and then Grote and Kleine Houtstraats, large and small wood streets. And all of these connect to the Grote Markt, which is Harlem's central market square. Of these places, it seems likely that if the cafe was on one of the streets, it would have been on Grote Houtstraat, although nowadays there is a shop opposite number 112, and no sign of what might have been there before. I've actually been to Harlem, and it's a beautiful city. I've sat in the market and had a coffee, and I can understand exactly what might have drawn the Exiles towards the idea of their daughter having decided to travel there. Of course, it does seem likely that there must have been a woman matching Pamela's description in the city, because some locals also reported that she had been seen at a nearby home, known as a drop-off for students. From this, a theory was born. Pamela's parents discovered that on the night she went missing, a group of European students, many of whom were reportedly Dutch, were working at a canning factory near Snettersham and had been holding a farewell party before returning to their respective countries. The Exiles, aided by the words of Reverend Peter Goldthorpe, began to believe that Pamela had either lost her memory and gone off with the students or, impulsively, had decided to go abroad with them. Winifred Exall told the papers that Pamela had finished her studies, and I think she was the freaking out sort of age. She may have met some students and gone off with them. Curiously, the Reverend's visions did not end in Harlem. Months after his first, he claimed to have had another premonition. This time it was Copenhagen, and a place called Kings Street. One of Pamela's boyfriends decided to travel to Copenhagen and he placed an article and a photo in the local paper. 
From that article, he reportedly received what is described as a string of replies from people claiming to have seen her. One man in particular stood out when he said that he'd seen Pamela at a newsstand about to buy a paper. The newsstand was reportedly located on a street whose name translated to King Street. The reason I haven't given the street name is because I can't quite confirm that the translation works. Again, it could be a little embellishment on the behalf of the article's author. Whether or not this is the case, apparently Danish police did investigate the possibility that Pamela had travelled there, and even reportedly located the place where she was living. Although she was never found, and unfortunately Danish newspaper archives aren't quite as easily accessible as Dutch ones, and so I can confirm little of this for certain. The first article that I can find about the Reverend comes from Lynn News on August the 26th, 1975, almost a year after Pamela vanished. In an interview with the writer, Winifred Exall says, It has been absolute torment for us. It's difficult. If it's a death, you can learn to adapt to that, but it's been absolute mental torture not knowing exactly where she is. In the same article, Detective Inspector Ken Watling of the Lynn CID told the papers that Pamela's file was still open, and although it was possible that she was dead and her body successfully hidden from view, it was felt that she was alive and could possibly have lost her memory. While Pamela's mother agreed with this, she added that the Reverend had told her that Pamela had regained her memory at the beginning of the year. She went on to say... He has now told us that Pamela will be home fairly soon, and we believe and pray that she will be. The years passed, though, and still no word came. In 1976 and 77, in the wake of the murder of 14-year-old Heidi Redden, whose body was found in a ditch at West Dereham, about 25 miles away from Snettersham Beach, Pamela's case was briefly reopened. Detectives did apparently attempt to link the two cases early on in the investigation, but Heidi's killer was caught and prosecuted, and no link was established, and so the case went cold again. Since then, the only real focus of the investigation appears to have been when Pamela's disappearance was looked into in connection with the serial killer Peter Tobin, who I spoke about in the last episode on Yvette Watson. Items of jewellery, which were discovered in houses Tobin was known to have lived in, were reportedly shown to her family, but no link could be established. It doesn't stop her name coming up time and time again in articles related to the Tobin investigation, though, and the line they normally use is something like, jewellery in Tobin's possession is claimed to be similar to items belonging to Pamela. There are no official quotes, no sources, and if you really think about the line, they're not claiming anything at all, because there is no evidence. Yes, the items might be similar, but then maybe that just means she had necklaces, and Tobin kept necklaces, and again, the desire to sensationalise and link these occurrences may well come at the cost of the truth. We're nearly at the end of the episode, And I want to finish with the contents of an article from the 3rd of October 1983. Published in the Reading Evening Post, it talked in depth about Pamela's disappearance and the role of the Reverend Peter Goldthorpe's premonitions. By the time of the article, her case was well and truly cold, 
though the Exiles had continued to keep in touch with the Reverend, and were still comforted by the idea that his visions may have been genuine. When asked what she thought had happened, Winifred Exel said, I think there is a good chance that she is still alive. You go on faith believing that she is still alive. We have no proof that she is dead. As long as we heard from her, we wouldn't mind if she didn't come home. The nine-year ordeal has taken its toll, however. It's a terrible thing. It ages you so much. We've both been very ill. We have never been the same. When asked about the case for the same article, a spokesperson at police headquarters said, We don't know what happened. One guess is as good as another. The dismissiveness of that quote is at odds with the pain that the Exall family obviously still felt and would continue to feel. On the 1st of October 1974, police appealed for witnesses in the Lynn area. They asked, Have you seen this girl? We don't want the public to forget about her. She must be kept in the forefront of their minds. Though to me, that quote already sounds a little like resignation. The disappearance of Pamela Exall happened in the shadow of the case of the headless torso at Cockley Clay, and where so little is known about what occurred that night, it's never really had the coverage that it needs to stay in the public eye. Pamela's parents have passed away now, but for a long time, they kept her motorbike in case she returned. And in its frame waited the law diploma that she never had the chance to see. She may have drowned that night in the creeping tides of the wash, or left her life behind with a group of Dutch students to head to Harlem. Or perhaps she was abducted and has never been found. Regardless of whether or not we ever know the answer, I think it's important to remember Pamela Exall whose footsteps were followed from Snettisham Beach to the Netherlands and to Copenhagen, and whose parents, in the absence of evidence, placed their trust in faith and premonition. If you enjoy the show and want to support what I do, then please go to www.patreon.com forward slash the outlines podcast. There is a new bonus episode added each month and merchandise available at the higher tier. There are many costs associated with the show and your support will allow me to put everything I can into producing episodes and making outlines a viable long-term project. My thanks to new and returning patrons including Emma LM and Ashley Hirons. This episode of Outlines was researched, written and performed by Jess Carter with sound production by Stuart Gardner. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.